I had the privilege yesterday of being part of the new members class here at Valley. It's always, it's always good to get together and talk about the ministry and the theology and the community of Valley Free here. It's, it's always good to remind ourselves what God is doing in our midst. But the favorite part of the day for me is when, when those who are attending, who are seeking membership in the church family, when they share their faith stories. I never, ever grow tired of hearing about the journey of someone to Christ. The destination may be the same. It's, it's life in Christ Jesus. But the story and the journey is different for every person. Each story is unique and amazing. When someone finds salvation in Jesus, it's always an intriguing story. And it always strikes me that salvation is a process. There seems to always be a pressing question, a, a difficult circumstance or a difficult decision or some theological roadblock that keeps us from acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord. And I, I can't seem to find the statistic, but it's commonly understood that someone needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ 8, 10, 15 times before they understand the gospel, before they turn to Christ. In that way, it just reminds me that salvation is a process. Salvation is a journey. And time and again, I'm amazed that God so patiently works with us to turn our hearts to Christ, to turn our hearts towards him. And if I understand that this is a process, that it's a journey for everyone, then it helps me to relax in my expectations of evangelism. It's unreasonable to think, to think that every time I share Jesus Christ with someone that there will be a conversion moment. My voice and my opportunity to share Christ and his word are more likely a link in a chain of events in that person's life, a chain, a, in, a chain of interactions with a variety of people in their life. J. Warner Wallace, the author of Cold Case Christianity, used the analogy of a baseball game to describe this, this idea. He said, baseball games are often won by a series of singles and doubles. If all the batters were to swing for the fence, the odds of winning would go way down. But if a batter simply gets up and tries to get on base, tries to swing for a base, and then allows the next batter to do their job, runners will eventually advance and score. Home runs happen, and they are part of the game, and they're a great part of the game, but they're not likely the bread and butter of the strategy of the game. Now think about your own spiritual journey. How many times did someone come alongside you and share Christ with you? How many times did someone's actions, their, their behavior, their integrity, cause you to think that there might be something to this faith thing? Faith thing? We're all on a journey of discovering Jesus, discovering faith. Now, the circumstances may differ. The time frame may be short. It may be long. The time frame may even be years, but the destination is the same, and that is a decision that every one of us needs to confront, and that is what do we do with Jesus? That's the decision that we all must confront. So as we approach the celebration of Easter, we are looking at some of the characters uh, in the narrative of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We're looking into the difference that the cross of Christ makes in their lives and in our lives. So today we look at the thief on the cross. His story seems to break all the rules and, and break down the whole case that I'm trying to build here, that it's a journey and it's a process. And his story has been capturing the minds and the imaginations of theologians and believers for, for centuries now. His story was played out literally in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the question is, how did he come so quickly to the realization that Jesus Christ needs to be his Lord? How did he come so quickly to the realization that on the other side of this awful crucifixion was a new promise and a new life that this Jesus guy that was hanging next to him had to offer? How did he figure that out? And I want to know today, what difference did the cross make in the life of the thief on the cross. So let's turn. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 will be our base camp this morning. Our text this morning starts at verse 39. But to, to bring in the context of the, the situation, I'm going to start at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And here's our text for today. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. Amen. Now, the other three Gospels mention the criminals who were, who were crucified with Jesus. But they only mention the fact that they, along with everyone else on that, it seems like everyone else on that awful day, mocked and scoffed Jesus. It's only the Gospel writer, Luke, that dives into the story of the discussion among the criminals with Jesus. It's not a surprise because Luke seems to relish in going deeper into the characters of the story. That's, that's, his, that's one of his trademarks. Others skim over personal stories while Luke goes deep. You see it with, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. We see it with Zechariah, with Simeon, etc. He goes, he goes deeper into their stories. And so when he comes to the thief on the cross, it's no surprise that Luke dives into the story a little bit farther and says, let's, let's look at him. Let's see what actually happened here. 
And he doesn't stop with just the mocking. He wants to get inside the scene. So the story is perplexing. How did this happen so quickly? But I believe the salvation of the thief on the cross helps us to see what happens in this journey to Jesus that we're all walking. So let's look at it. I'm, I simply want to walk through some of, the, some of the discussion that goes on at the cross that day, on the cross that day, among the thieves, among them with Jesus. I want to look at that story. Let's walk through thought by thought. The first idea is, is found in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, if you've seen Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, you would probably agree with me that, that this humiliation, this mocking, this abuse, the torture of Christ was, was more than vividly pictured in the film. And every time I watch the film, and the, and, and, the, and, and the scenes go deeper and deeper into the punishment of Christ and the torture of Christ, I just want to jump to my feet and I want to scream, Stop it! Don't you know what you're doing? He is Jesus. He's the Son of God. Enough! It's the same way when I read the story of the crucifixion <coughs> of Jesus here in Luke chapter 23. Everyone was mocking him. Everyone was hurling insults at him. Just go back over ten, chapter 23. Look at it. Verse, verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by him, <clears throat> vehemently accusing him. Verse 11, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Go down to verse 18. But they all cried out together. All the crowd cried out together. Go down to verse 21. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. You get the idea? This crowd is out of control, and they're hurling abuse at him and accusations. Look at verse 36. The rulers scoffed at him. Look at, I'm sorry, that was 35. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him. Everybody's getting in on the game. And even the sign that was posted on the cross above the head of Jesus in verse, verse 38, there was also an inscription over him that said, this is the king of the Jews, was not there to announce his title, was there to mock him. Little did they know, those who wrote the inscription, those who nailed it to the cross above him, that it really was true that he really is the king of the Jews. But it's all mocking. In, in Mark chapter 15, the story includes the idea that Jesus was led back to the headquarters for his final torture, his final flogging, his final beating before he would be led to the cross. It says he was mocked and abused by a whole battalion of soldiers. And I wrote in, my, in the margins of my Bible that a battalion is 600 men gathered with one purpose in mind, and that is to mock him and to humiliate him and abuse him. The Gospels don't tell us this. But the criminals, must they were crucified with him. They must have been going along in that process with him. I don't know about the humiliation. Maybe that was part of it for everybody. I don't know. But they must have been there for the flogging. They must have participated in that. That's all part of the preparation for crucifixion. So the criminals were there. 
You see, the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and that we've all fallen short of the glory of the Lord, that we're all trapped, that we're all even dead in our sins, <coughs> and we're living out our rejection of God. We're also told that when our sin nature grabs a hold of us, we refuse to recognize God, and we move toward out-and-out -out rebellion of God. That's the definition of our sin nature, is rebellion of God and moving away from him. And so this rejection is, is part of our sin nature. And that's what we're seeing here in this scene. It's rejection of God, even by the religious leaders, even by the outwardly religious people of the day, they joined with the soldiers, they joined with the religious leaders, they joined with the governor, they joined with the whole crowd in their open rebellion and their rejection. And the more I see of this scene, the more I read into this and, and understand the depth of this humiliation, the more I want to scream, enough. Stop it. So brothers and sisters, whether, whether we actually nail the, hammer the nails into the cross, or whether we actually commit overse and gross sin, or whether we're just good people that fall down at times, the Bible says that our starting point in this journey of faith is in enemy territory. Irreverence of God, possibly even mocking, is the world that we live in. And the thief on the cross was immersed in this antagonism toward God. That's the context. So I asked the question this morning, what's the issue? And the issue is this, that the starting point for each of us is a state of irreverence for God. We all start there. That's the first step of the process. And we go on to verse 40. But the other rebuked him, said, Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? The other gospel writers indicate that both criminals, both of them, were involved in the mocking festival that day. But somewhere along the line, this thief figured out that there was more going on in this scene than he understood. So what was it? What made him jump ship? What made him go from mocking Jesus to all of a sudden turning around and saying, do you not fear God? Why is he all of a sudden now standing with Jesus when a moment ago he was mocking him? I want to know the answer to that question. The Apostle Paul gives us insight into what happens in this part of our journey. Keep your, keep your finger in Luke 23 and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading at verse 12. This is what Paul says. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Listen to this, because only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. 
Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, oh, listen to this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul is talking about the Jewish people and, and the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. He's talking about a veil being over their eyes. And when, mountain, when Moses came down from the mountain, the glory of the Lord was physically present with him and his face shone with a brilliance that they couldn't take in. And, and so Moses put a veil over his head so that they didn't have to stand so close to the glory of God. But Paul takes that and he expands on it and he says, you know, whenever you're not in Christ, there's a veil that goes over your, over your heart of your mind, you can't see the things of God. But this is the work of the Spirit. We can't control this part of the process. Until God moves, until God opens, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.8, if he opens the eyes of our heart, then we can't see it. We can't see God. The criminals, the soldiers, the religious leaders, the people, the governors... None of them could see what God was doing. They couldn't see Jesus as God. They couldn't see Jesus as the Messiah, as the sent one, as the promised one. In their anger, in their jealousy, in their arrogance, in their religiousness, in their religiosity, in their ignorance, the veil was firmly in place. But something happened to the thief that day. Something happened. And I'll tell you what, he did, what it was. He saw God. He saw God in Jesus Christ. He, and somehow this, this veil that Paul talks about was being lifted away from his eyes. <clears throat> the eyes of his heart were being opened. And so he blurts out the question. A moment ago he was mocking Jesus. <clears throat> and now he blurts out the question. Do you not fear God? Why did he say that? What was he seeing? So I'm going to speculate. The text doesn't help us with this. So I'm just going to project myself into the text. So be mindful of that. This is not the gospel. This is what I think the story leads us to. First of all, I think he saw the way Jesus handled his abuse. There was no cussing. There was no cursing. There was no blaming. Jesus didn't try to run. He didn't lash out when they mocked him. And the other, the other thing I, I, I believe that he saw was that he, he heard what Jesus was saying and doing on the cross. In the midst of his agony, the thief heard forgiveness. When they pounded the nails in his hands and when they pounded the, the nails in his feet, Jesus didn't curse them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Thief heard that. He heard when Jesus called out to his Father in heaven. He heard Jesus care for his mother. He heard Jesus minister to the women on, along the way as he walked towards the cross. He saw how Jesus refused the wine and the gall that was designed to deaden the pain. He took the full brunt of the pain and the torture. Jesus didn't wince from it. 
going to leave my script right here. I had a sore toe this week. Okay, Sandy's laughing at me. For the last two weeks, I've been limping around on this big toe that just is aching like crazy. So I called the doctor, and they said, yeah, come on in. And they had an opening right there, and so I went in. And the, the doctor, the nice lady, said, yeah, we gotta, we got to get that out of there. We've got we to dig around in there and get that out. She said, we can do it. Uh, we can do it quickly. I'll just go in there and snip and cut and get that out of there. And, and I looked at her and I said, lady, you, you cannot work that fast. She said, well, if I give you lidocaine, you are not going to like it. I said, I don't care. I don't want you digging around in my big toe. And so she got ready and she stuck that needle in the end of my toe. And I, I immediately was stuck to the ceiling of the, of the room. She said, oh, you can't move, you can't move. And so I, she tried it again, and I gripped the bed as hard as I could, and, and we did it. How many of us, when we're in those kinds of situations, take the painkiller? Jesus refused the painkiller. You know why he did that? It's because he needed to take the full brunt of sin. He needed to experience the fullness of death for us. And I think the criminal saw that. The criminal saw that. Something in all of that caused him to see God at work. He also understood at that moment, I believe, that God was on his throne. That's the, that's the very essence of his question, do you not fear God? He saw God was seated on his throne he saw that the mocking, along with their crimes, was something that God was not pleased with. And he saw an ever-increasing picture, an ever-clear picture of who God was in that moment. You see, for the, the thief on the cross, the veil was being removed. In that process, he moved from antagonism to complacency to being curious. And he moved to realizing that God somehow had a role in this moment and in his life. When, when uh, Sandy and I were part of a team in 1992 going to Romania, the first team from Valley Free that, that went to Romania, we, we had the privilege of, of sharing the gospel with a young couple in, the, in a park in, in Craiova, Romania. And as we shared the gospel with these, these folks, they were totally indifferent to the gospel. We began to walk through principle by principle, verse by verse, and we did a full presentation of the gospel with them seated around this picnic table in this Romanian park. And Sandy and I both saw it as, as, as we rounded the corner on the gospel and brought it to a conclusion. You could see visibly the change in their face as they realized what the gospel meant for them. And they prayed to receive Christ right then and there. We could visibly see it. What's the issue? The issue is that in our process, in our journey, we need to come to a place of respect and reverence for God. Even if we don't understand the whole picture. I doubt very much that the thief on the cross understood the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the virgin birth. Or I doubt if he understood even the whole process of salvation, but he knew this. He knew that God was real. He knew that God was calling him. And he knew that he needed to know more. 
So let's keep going. The, the second part of verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? The same sentence. And he goes on in verse 41, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The same sentence. When God comes into focus in our thoughts, in our hearts, it forces us to look in the mirror. For the, for the thief, he realized his own sinfulness. He, and, and as we saw here earlier in the, in the dramatization, we saw the full depth of his sorrow and his, his guilt. He understood that he was broken. He understood that he'd been rebellious. He understood that he was deserving of the punishment that was coming his way, the punishment that was being meted out for him. And all he could do was cry out for mercy because mercy means that I'm getting something. Mercy means I'm not getting something that I deserve. And he understood that he deserved it. He goes on to say, he, he says right in the text, this man has done nothing wrong. He realized that Jesus didn't deserve any of this. He understood his own sinfulness, but he also looked to Jesus and he realized this guy's done nothing wrong. What's he doing on the cross? Why is he part, my partner in crucifixion today? The Apostle John says it like this in John chapter 16. The Holy Spirit will come and he will speak to you. And he will convict you of your own sin before God. And he will also convict you of the righteousness of Christ. And that's exactly what was going on in that moment at the cross. You see, when we start to see Jesus, we quickly realize that we're not him, that we're not like him, that we are desperately lost in our own rebellion toward God. That's our sin. I was reminded of this yesterday as we went through, in our membership class, we went through our statement of faith. In, in our statement of faith, it says this, in union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and by choice alienated from God and under his wrath. One author that I was reading this week said it like this, it's the heaven-wide distinction between the Savior and the companions of his fate that day on the cross. The heaven-wide distinction. I love that idea. So what's the issue? The issue is that our human condition of sin, it's our human condition of sin and our inability to escape it. We have to come to that realization. And then we go on. I already read it, but he says, don't you know that this is our due reward? We deserve this. You see, the, the thief realized he knew how this was all going to play out. He would receive the full weight of his punishment for his crime. And not only that, but following his brutal, excruciating death, he would meet a just God was also ready to punish him for his sin nature. And he saw God seated on his throne. He saw through to an, an eternal punishment. He saw more than his crime. He saw his sinful nature, and that he was deserving of God's rightful wrath. He saw all of that, and it must have pressed in on him like a heavy weight. And along with that realization comes the notion that there's not a thing I can do about it comes the notion that I have no authority, no power, no ability, 
no calling that I can use, that I can call on to, to save myself from this condition. When that happens, when we come to that notion, it's overwhelming. And I believe that when we come to that place, it's the Holy Spirit who leads us to that moment. It's the Holy Spirit who takes the veil off of our eyes and said, you need to see this. You need to see where this is all going. But this conviction, and it's led by the Holy Spirit, is meant to lead us to repentance. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Somebody say, praise the Lord, because he doesn't leave us in that place. He brings us to that place, but he doesn't leave us in that place. It's, it's one of those places in Scripture where we would use the word but. But God, God is not pleased to leave us here. In, in, in 2 Corinthians, again, Paul, Paul writes this about this conviction. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief only produces death. So what's the issue? The issue is that we need to see clearly our condition and the judgment that we face without Christ. So let's turn the corner. Let's go to verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me. And now the veil is coming off, people. He's beginning to see ever more clearly. He sees the kingdom that Jesus has been talking about. He begins to see into eternity. He begins to see that the kingdom is real. He begins to see that eternity is real. He also, he, he must see that Jesus is being led by this truth. He must see that the kingdom of God is causing Jesus to respond in ways that are making an impression on the heart of the thief on the cross. He sees, listen to this, he sees past his own situation at this point and he gazes into eternity. The thief on the cross no longer sees his cross. He sees eternity. He sees the kingdom of heaven that is looming ever larger in his vision. So what else is happening here? He's looking past his own circumstance. He's even beginning to look past his own death. His spiritual eyes are now being opened and they're being lifted towards heaven. And it's beginning to shape his thoughts and his, his longings. He can see that there's life on the other side and he wants it. So what is the issue? God is the one who places eternity in our hearts. That longing comes from God. That revelation comes from God. Eternity in our hearts. Finally, in verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Your kingdom. Today, people like to say that we're, we're spirit. I'm, have you ever heard this? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't do this church stuff I don't do formal religion, but I'm a spiritual person. People like Oprah Winfrey and Deepak Chopra are leading lots of people to God, but the question is what kind of definition to, of God do you have? Who is the God that they're leading you to? There's all kinds of voices that are calling us to God. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, the universe told me? Have you ever heard that? Yeah? 
I believe in this circumstance, the universe is trying to tell me, I believe the universe gave me, what? Help me out here. You see, it's, a, it's an undefined idea of who God is. We all have eternity in our hearts, but not everyone is seeking after the true God. But the thief on the cross, he was dialed in. You know what he was dialed in on? It's not even the kingdom anymore. It's Jesus. He's dialed in on Jesus. He understood that the kingdom of heaven was directly linked to this Jesus guy who was, who was hanging on the cross right next to him. Somehow, he understood that the entrance to the kingdom was through Jesus. He understood that somehow Jesus had a position of leadership in this kingdom. And I, I would submit to you that he understood that Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. He's the king. He's the one. All of this glory, all of this eternity, all of this kingdom that he was getting a vision of in that moment that God was revealing to him as he lifted the veil, all of that was coming to him and he realized it's all about Jesus. The veil was being removed. He knew that life, whatever that meant after death, was found in Jesus. Legend says that, that um, the thief on the cross was a companion of Barabbas, the, the criminal who was released in, Jesus, in the place of Jesus. The legend says that they were involved, this is strictly legend, the legend says that they were involved in an insurrection trying to dislodge the Roman authorities from, from Israel. And they did that because they had a sense that the Messiah was coming, that the Jewish Messiah was coming, and, and they needed to get rid of this Roman occupation in order for the Jewish Messiah to come. Does that sound familiar today? Somehow Barabbas was able to be released while this criminal was called upon for his sentence. But they were looking for the Jewish Messiah. So as a Jew, he already had a sense of anticipation for some kind of Messiah, and now that, re that was being realized in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, our journey may start out seeking God, and I submit to you that everyone is seeking the answer to this question. Everyone has a sense of eternity in their hearts. Everyone is seeking after Jesus, whether they know it or not. But brothers and sisters, the search must always come to and end with Jesus. It has to conclude with Jesus. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. There's no other name by which we must be saved. You see, the thief didn't just see God. He saw Jesus. And he saw him as Lord of heaven. Wow. Did somebody say amen right there? So what's the issue? Jesus is the issue. He's the decision that we have to make. He's the doorway to our eternal future. He's the doorway to abundant life today. You see, eternity doesn't start somewhere out there. The moment that I understand these things about Jesus Christ, the moment that I recognize him as my Lord and my Savior, 
is the moment eternity starts in our hearts. It's the moment the veil is removed and I begin to see clearly. So the truth of the matter is, I don't know if the journey for the thief on the cross was actually within a few hours or if it, if it took place over the matter of, of, of years as, as God slowly began revealing to him step by step and planting the seeds that would come to blossom that day at the cross. I don't know. You see, it's a journey. And whether, whether it takes three hours or three years or three decades, it's a journey. And God is removing the veil so that we can see him. For most of us, God is at work revealing himself, revealing his truth, revealing his grace in a variety of ways through a variety of people so that we can see him clearly. And as I listened to testimonies yesterday, I heard a common theme. And that was this. I, I didn't understand this. I didn't understand that. I, I couldn't see how God was in my circumstances. But the more I leaned into him, the more I sought him, the more I saw his hand in my life. That's the process. And you know, it doesn't stop when we come to Jesus. It goes on after that too as we continue to seek him. And that process is, can be, but it's not often instantaneous. It's most often a journey over time. It's most often a journey through our circumstances. It brings me to seeing him clearly. Circumstances. One author said, People rarely come to know Jesus sitting leisurely on a couch. Think about that. But we all come to the intersection that the thief and his companion confronted that day on the cross. They both had to decide what to do with this Jesus. You see, no one escapes that decision. The unrepentant chief thief chose death. He chose rebellion against Jesus. He chose to turn away from God in that moment. And he went into eternity that day without Jesus. The repentant thief, on the other hand, as we see Jesus promising, was ushered into paradise that very day. So let me ask you, I, I, there's so many, I have a half a page of, of questions and and, and summaries from this, these ideas, let, I boil it down to three questions for you today. Three questions for you today. The first question is this. Where are you? Everyone in this room is on a journey. The only question is, where are you on the spectrum? Have you heard of Jesus, but you've, you've been taking him casually, that you... You've not been giving him a second thought? Do you need to seek someone out who can answer your questions, who can respond to your doubts, can, can answer your, your interest in the gospel? Or, or maybe on the, on the flip side of the coin, you've, you've heard of Jesus and you realize like, like the thief on the cross that day that life is found in Jesus and you need to call out to him. Or perhaps you've made that decision long ago to turn your life over to Jesus Christ but you find yourself wondering where God is today. Brothers and sisters, do you need to bring those worries, those concerns, those anxieties, those, those whatevers, those unknowing 
things in your life, do you, do you need to bring them to the cross today? I'm asking you, where, where are you on the spectrum today? And don't say I'm not part of this because everybody's on the spectrum. Everybody's on the spectrum. The second question I would ask you this morning is where are they? My question to you, brothers and sisters, this morning is how do you look at the world around you? The people you live with, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the, the people that you share your neighborhood with, how, how do you see them? Do you just see them as people that are going on their merry way? Or do you see them as people on a journey to Jesus? How can you, how can you adjust your prayer life according to this the spectrum, to intercede on their behalf, that, that the Holy Spirit would move closer to them today, that the Holy Spirit would, would remove the veil from their, from, their, from their eyes, would open the eyes of their hearts so that they could see Jesus. Does that change your prayer life? I hope it does. And then I, I ask myself, can we adjust our lives to intersect with theirs so that you can be one of the messengers? So that you can be one of the messengers in that link, that, that procession, that, 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 that chain of, of people who are, are coming across the stage of someone's life and introducing them to Jesus. Whether it's by action, deed, word. What can I do to get in front of somebody today to show them Jesus? If I understand that this is a process, that I understand that Jesus is drawing all men unto himself then I, I ask myself, how can I be part of that? And I'm praying that it changes the way you look at your neighborhood this week. And then the third question I have for you this morning, and I'm really impressed with this in the story of the thief on the cross. And the question is this, what does your testimony say? How does your testimony speak? I can't help but think of how the testimony of Jesus was played out that day for the thief on the cross. The way he suffered, the way he took abuse, the way he didn't respond to verbal abuse, the way he took all of that humiliation that was heaped and heaped and heaped on him, and he didn't say a word. That's his testimony. In that case, it was a silent testimony to the thief on the cross. So when I, when I look at that, I ask myself, what does my testimony say to those around me? What does my integrity say to people around me? What does my honesty say to people around me? What does my, my, my life perspective, my disposition say to the people around me? Does it reflect the joy of the Lord? Does it, respect, does it reflect the truth of Jesus Christ? Does it reflect a passion for others to know Jesus? What is it about my testimony? And I'm asking each one of us, me included today, what does my testimony, what does our testimony say to the world around us? The thief on the cross saw Jesus in a new light, and I think he revealed to us what it means to walk this journey to the cross of Christ and to gaze into the eyes of Jesus. So I pray that all of us would look at that this week and say, Jesus, take me farther. Show me the world as you see it. Help me to reveal your eternity to other people. 
Lord Jesus, if, you, if you've never received Jesus Christ, today is the day to do it. Today is the day to take the message in and say, yes, it's time. It's time. If you'd like to do that, I would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word and, and the, 